This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we have the second installment of our close reading of Frederick Engels' 1847 Manifesto Draft, The Principles of Communism. Should we just pick up where we left off? Should we just go right to 12? All right. 12. What were the further consequences of the Industrial Revolution? Big industry created in the steam engine and other machines, the means of endlessly expanding industrial production, speeding it up, and cutting its costs. With production thus facilitated, the free competition, which is bound up with big industry, assumed the most extreme forms. A multitude of capitalists invaded industry and, in a short while, more was produced than was needed. As a consequence, finished commodities could not be sold, and a so-called commercial crisis broke out. Factories had to be closed, their owners went bankrupt, and the workers with deepest misery reigned everywhere. After a time, the superfluous products were sold, wages arose, and business got better than ever. But it was not long before too many commodities were again produced, and a new crisis broke out, only to follow the same course as its predecessor. This 19th century, the condition of industry has constantly fluctuated between periods of prosperity and periods of crisis. Nearly every five to seven years, a fresh crisis has intervened, always with the greatest hardship for workers, and always accompanied by general revolutionary stirrings and the direct parallel to the whole existing order of things. Compared to the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Basically, same question, different answer. The middle section of this almost felt like if you're going to make like a kid's Marxist storybook about the absurdity of the capitalist industrial system. It would be written almost like that. It's kind of like a very simple version of the concept of like the historical class state, where the emergent class of history that's going to project its interests onto the epoch it makes itself through like political revolution. And for students of history on a more empirical level, it's a lot more messy than that. But there is, I think, some truth to the way that institutions develop organizational norms around certain sets of interests with certain types of property. So I think ultimately something like this theory can't always be defended on an individual intentional level, but has like a broader structural functional truth to it. This feels to me like the beginning of stuff like the Brenner debate in a certain sense, Um, like tracing capitalism as a specific social formation and something that came out of specific conditions. Because I, I think that there's a very, very big difference between what Engels is doing and saying that machines created capitalism. I don't think that's the narrative we're being given here. No, that's the result of having an irrational system where the capacity to produce is a capacity of the market mechanisms to find consumers that are capable of actually purchasing said commodities, you know? It's an expression of an irrational use of products of rationality and science. I noticed in draft of a communist confession of faith, which is the other text angles prepared, the two of these being synthesized into the manifesto, 
the description here is quite similar. The proletariat came into being as a result of the introduction of the machines which have been invented since the last century. But these machines came out of specific social relations, out of feudalism, not just ex nihilo. So to kind of connect what I was saying to the Brenner debate, which is, it's just absolutely related. Like, Brenner is the one who is trying to get more concrete about the individual relations based on, like, people's class interests, right? And how many feudal power brokers had a big interest in not developing capitalism, as it turned out. (laughs) And so that sort of throws a, a wrench into a traditional reading of this, that when Brenner's work got absorbed, it sort of destroyed the story of the class state, and people didn't take that very seriously as a theory anymore. But I think that has something to do, maybe, and this is reductive, of course, but with the disappearance of class from politics in general, people no longer wanted to talk about class states, like sort of functional proto-explanations, or if you don't think of pointing out how something serves something else is really being an explanation. I think it's a, an essential intuition for building a social scientific theory, at least. And um, I don't know. I think this theory, broadly speaking, has a good historical uh, uh, rationale behind it. And so we haven't really covered that much about the Brenner debates here. It's probably one of the better known like theoretical debates if you go to like grad school Marxism. It's something I want to turn people on to, but as an introductory text, I think this piece says the start of what you need to know about the rise of capitalism. You know, and I, and I do think more, more reading is necessary, and I think that um, some of what Marx has to say about the transition from feudalism to capitalism, I should say, is really fascinating in where it's developed beyond this, but as an introductory text to Marxism. I, I think this does a good job. Getting into like specific like historiographical like debates, because it's also kind of a, like a broader theoretical question of like what constitutes a mode of production and how does one mode of production turn into another mode of production? Where, where is the, where's the dividing line? When did it go from being one to the other? You know, like the, it's uh it's a, it's a complicated question. You've got people saying, you know, like, this revolution can be bourgeois but not capitalist, and this other revolution be, can be capitalist but not bourgeois, and, and things of that nature. And there's lots of lots of debate about the rise of capitalism and how strange it was. Communism is is interesting because it it seems like communism is a lot about the human species becoming uh, self aware and kind of taking control of history. Anything else on twelve? Nah, um, you know, read Brenner. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, 13. What follows from these periodic commercial crises? First, that though big industry in its earliest stage created free competition, it has now outgrown free competition. That, for big industry, competition and generally the individualistic organization of production have become a fetter which it must and will shatter. That, so long as big industry remains on its present footing, it can be maintained only at the cost of general chaos every seven years, each time threatening the whole of civilization and not only plunging the proletarians into misery, but also ruining large sections of the bourgeoisie. Hence, either that big industry must be given up, which is an absolute impossibility, or that it makes unavoidably necessary an entirely new organization of society, in which production is no longer directed by mutually competing individual industrialists, 
but rather by the whole society operating according to a definite plan and taking account of the needs of all. Second, that big industry and the limitless expansion of production which it makes possible bring within the range of feasibility a social order in which so much is produced that every member of society will be in position to exercise and develop all his powers and faculties in complete freedom. It thus appears that the very qualities of big industry which, in our present society, produce misery and crises are those which, in a different form of society, will abolish this misery and these catastrophic depressions. We see with the greatest clarity, one, that all these evils are, from now on, to be ascribed solely to a social order which no longer corresponds to the requirements of the real situation, and two, that it is possible, through a new social order, to do away with these evils altogether. Amen, Angles. This very much cuts across a sort of small as beautiful attempt to re-decentralize communism. We have to accept the consequences of big-picture technologies. We can't peel back specifically those ones that network us. Those are the ones most targeted by even people who want to do a nuanced peel-back or degrowth or whatever kind of word people repackage soft primitivism with. We've shifted on this show um, a number of times vis-a-vis decadence theory where Mm. it wasn't 1914, it was in the 70s. Actually, it was in 1847. (laughs) That's when when capitalism became decadent. (laughs) I think it's pretty clear from this text. I like their optimism that they can transition to communism like right now, like 1947, basically. It's like the first theory Uh, of communism. Let's do it! It's like, yeah, okay, from now on, clearly the problem is... Yeah, the social order that's mismanaging this technology, let's say. I honestly do believe there was room at the time to, I mean, especially maybe even with the underdevelopment of capitalism at the time. No, um, that's true, because war wasn't completely subsumed to industrial production at this point. So the way that international relations were, I actually feel like it probably would be uh, more feasible. So, like, we have uh, different opportunities. I think they did have a kind of historical window in certain ways. Though a lot of times when they're talking about the actual revolutions they run into, they they make a lot more um, tepid claims, Marx and Engels, yeah. where they're, they're saying, like, all right, this is what this could have accomplished at best, but it's moving us closer and closer towards the social revolution and that sort of thing. So it's a kind of tightrope that they walk. Um, But I think one thing that's really ultimately important here is that they don't condemn the instruments of production. Um, I really like this point here. Second, that big industry and that the limitless expansion of production, which makes it possible, bring within the range of feasibility a social order in which so much is produced that every member of society will be in a position to exercise and develop all his powers and faculties in complete freedom. So much is produced. But not only that so much is produced, but that we now have the capacity to organize all the conditions of humanity on the basis of maximum social freedom. And I think that was true in the 1840s, and that's true today. And so, you know, when I read Engels saying this, this stuff, it just gets me revved up, like, let's do it. Well, it requires an irreducible humanism. Like, it requires a faith in humanity's capacity to bring about that kind of organization. Right. Hey, I'm a human. Either this works out for us or it doesn't, so I'm on team. It can work out for us. Well, right. Well, that's the thing. Like, you can't really take it out of Marxism. You can, but but you destroy it. You can, but you shouldn't. It's like cutting out. It's like spinal cord or something. Yeah. Right. I mean, Marxism is all about universal humanity and the ways that, like, socialized production 
bridges the gap between individual and community. Like that long suffering problem between the the individual and the group it's it's about trying to overcome that and finding the expression of the group in the individual and the expression of the individual in the group here's the deal though like i'm not really sure this was possible in fucking 1847 why not we were having a discussion of whether it was possible in 1917 yeah i feel like it's less possible in in the midst of world war one than it was when angles was writing if you put aside the kind of present historical conditions the mode of production has the capacity for this thing like it's not about okay are we in a favorable historical position to and i'm 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 kind of bullshit making this up i think you have a good point lexi but you know (laughs) i can't back this up either but i'm going to talk about it as if i have a fully worked out theory (laughs) right right here we go just make it sure there might have been a way to have a transition to socialism if the working classes had managed to take power somehow in like 1848 Um, you know in in this period the terrain of struggle sort of shifts as like capitalism like develops itself right like the need for internationalism becomes, I feel like, even more pressing when industrial production has advanced to the point where, like, all of war is basically subsumed to production. Whoever produces the most and produces best wins. One thing about today, though, we don't have those damn peasants. I mean, we do, but it's not as big a deal. Yeah, they're either completely outside or they're like Chinese peasants where you really just, you're a peasant because they have like a weird social classification system and like you have a title. Now we have some really weird, like, middle-class status thing that have, like, a sort of petty bourgeois-ish, kulak-ish consciousness, you know what I mean? So it's not all, I mean, I don't want to say it's not all that different than peasantry, but there is still a town-country dynamic with, you know, appropriately inconvenient uh, class consequences that makes politics hard in a similar way. I love what Angles says about the town-country stuff later in this. Oh, yeah. Speaking of later in the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we could go on. Good segue. 14. What will this new social order have to be like? Above all, it will have to take control of industry and of all branches of production, out of the hands of mutually competing individuals, and instead institute a system in which all of these branches of production are operated by society as a whole. That is, for the common account, according to a common plan, and with the participation of all members of society. It will, in other words, abolish competition and replace it with association. Moreover, since the management of industry by individuals necessarily implies private property, and since competition is in reality merely the manner and form in which the control of industry by private property owners expresses itself, it follows that private property cannot be separated from competition and the individual management of industry. Private property must, therefore, be abolished, and in its place must come the common utilization of all instruments of production and the distribution of all products according to common agreement. In a word, what is called the communal ownership of goods. In fact, the abolition of private property is, doubtless, the shortest and most significant way to characterize the revolution in the whole social order which has been made necessary by the development of industry. And for this reason, it is rightly advanced by communists as their main demand. If you're not, like, thinking of socialism as being democratic management, this makes zero sense. How do you expect to have a situation where you abolish individual management and you get common agreement to utilize all instruments of production and the distribution of all products? Right. Right. What's also important is, you know, operated by society as a whole, that is, for the common account, according to a common plan, and with the participation of all members of society. So, you know, like, there would be 
a generally a sort of agreed upon plan in terms of like how production is going to be utilized. Mm-hmm. That would be decided democratically. Yeah. It, it wouldn't just be like people like sitting on their phones, like voting on shit all day. You know what I mean? Like there would probably be kind of like a general plan. We've agreed to this. This is what we're going to do for a while. You know, there's significant like room for our conception of how democratic that would be and what form it would take. But like, it's meaningless without a lot of participation. I think it's really interesting that he emphasizes the abolition of private property is the shortest and most significant way to characterize the revolution, not a political goal, but a social goal. It is in the realm of capitalist market relations that the major change is made um, and that these relations of production reflect into the public sphere in a lot of ways and that having these market relations is part of why we need a separate politics in the first place. Is private property not political? I know what you mean. It's social, yes. It's one thing to talk about the relationships that get ratified by a legal property form. However, we're almost always talking about these relationships that get ratified by the legal property form. In terms of the legal property form, we very rarely can have a vocabulary that talks about the relations of private property that doesn't actually invoke the legal structures at the heart of the bourgeois state. What really makes it bourgeois, like beyond this, you know, abstract bong rip stuff, like the real nuts and bolts of what makes it a defender of bourgeois class interest? I mean, property is certainly political because you see the most reactionary people are the most like pro-property. The classical reactionary view is this idea that property gives you stake in society. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if you have property, you have the right to be a citizen right. because you have skin in the game. Right, they're connected. I think that there's just a private-public dichotomy here where like, the relationships in which we all try to determine a general plan right now, right, like addressing things at the level of social totality, that is sublimated into politics today. And we can't address things at the social totality because politics in the bourgeois state stops as soon as market relations start, or it has a a concrete ceiling, I should say, when it comes to interference in market relations. And so private property can have political components or be connected to the political. But I think because there's this division... Well, it's political, but it's presented as apolitical. Yeah. It's political, but it comes before the political, because politics arises to manage the mode of production. Politics is determined by private affairs. And so the relationship is not that private affairs are political so much as politics are privately determined in secret, despite their claim to the general will and to be all about like the nation and society and all of that. Though I agree with you, Jake, it actually is a two-way street. This is a critique of political economy, you know, that this isn't really outside politics. That's the whole point. That this is also a political matter. Yeah. Fifteen. Was not the abolition of private property possible at an earlier time? No. Every change in the social order, every revolution in property relations, is the necessary consequence of the creation of new forces of production, which no longer fit into the old property relations. Private property has not always existed. When, towards the end of the Middle Ages, there arose a new mode of production, 
which could not be carried on under the then-existing feudal and guild forms of property. This manufacture, which had grown out of the old property relations, created a new property form, private property. And for manufacture and the earliest stage of development of big industry, private property was the only possible property form. The social order based on it was the only possible social order. So long as it is not possible to produce so much that there is enough for all, with more left over for expanding the social capital and extending the forces of production, only so long as this is not possible, there must always be a ruling class directing the use of society's productive forces, and a poor, oppressed class. How these classes are constituted depends upon the stage of development. The Agarian Middle Ages give us the baron and the serf. The cities of the later Middle Ages show us the guildmaster and the journeyman, and the day laborer. The 17th century has its manufacturing workers. The 19th has big factory owners and proletarians. It is clear that, up to now, the forces of production have never been developed to the point where enough could be developed for all, and that private property has become a fetter and a barrier in relation to the further development of the forces of production. Now, however, the development of big industry has ushered in a new period. Capital and the forces of production have been expanded to an unprecedented extent, and the means are at hand to multiply them without limit in the near future. Moreover, the forces of production have been concentrated in the hands of a few bourgeois, while the great mass of people are more and more falling into the proletariat, their situation becoming more wretched and intolerable in proportion to the increase of wealth of the bourgeoisie. And finally, these mighty and easily extended forces of production have so far outgrown private property and the bourgeoisie that they threaten at any moment to unleash the most violent disturbances in the social order. Now, under these conditions, the abolition of private property has become not only possible, but absolutely necessary. Here, with that urgency, you get the er form, the paradigmatic form, of Marxists being like, shit, man. Now's the fucking time, you know, this technology. I mean, you just can't possibly imagine it going any further, could you? Under capitalism? <laughs> like, it must burst asunder. It seems more like, um, dude, imagine all the stuff we could be doing, like... You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you see that kind of returning today where you hear about declining rate of, of innovation and, like, research, you know, because everybody has, like, their intellectual property that they're kind of hoarding to themselves which makes it harder to develop you know, new ideas and unleash their productive forces further. Or you just have factories that just get shut down and just, it's just completely wasted material because stuff's cheaper overseas. You, know, you have resources being put to just completely pointless shit. Right, but none of that would matter if there isn't a better way to allocate things. Right. If markets were still the most efficient way to allocate things, there would still be a pretty good social argument for, well, even if these things are tremendously wasteful, you know, no other organization of society produces and allocates as much as efficiently. And so that's why the historical argument is important. And maybe there was a way of coordinating things in 1847. Um, but, you know, considering how something like the Soviet Union goes, even, you know, later on. I know there's a lot more problems with the Soviet Union than just productive forces, but I do think that has a big part in what made it very difficult to imagine a real alternative to capitalism, is you had to imagine something that would allocate much more efficiently than markets. Um, and I don't know that that was a possibility then, but I still think, like, Marxism 
if you're doing it in a situation where maybe things haven't developed that far, but you don't know that. So you just try to make a revolution in your situation. You kind of assume things that would kind of make it work out. <laughs> like, yeah, fuck it. Of course we can, like, do better than this. Like, I don't know. I'm not trying to hate, you know? Like, I appreciate the spirit. But uh, am, am I being a massive hater? <laughs> Lexi, I think that he's not saying that things would be perfect if they tried it then. The moral of the story that communists are trying to say is now or before or in the future, if we all ran this shit, it would be better. And I know that you know that and that, that you are saying, hey, it's complicated. But as an introductory text, I think Engels does get to that well. Sure. Am I, am I being a massive hater, Jake? Am I, am I bringing up something that, that's a good point or am I just being a troll? Um, I want to push back on this idea that because of the trajectory of the Soviet Union, they couldn't have successfully built socialism in Europe in the 19th century. I don't think that tracks at all. I think they're completely different situations. Also, the kind of extremely like simple picture they give of class, like Baron and Serf, Guildmaster and Journeyman. I think what they are saying is that Baron and Serf, Guildmaster and Journeyman factory owners and proletarians like those aren't the only classes or antagonisms in society but they are the central antagonisms they are the ones that sort of animate the social trajectory of their times Mm -hmm. i'm sure some feudal scholar is going to write us an angry email but there i'm sure there were tensions between knights and feudal lords but that isn't the central antagonism of the social formation and it doesn't have to (laughs) do as centrally with the reproduction of the social formation it's all a question of whether you find the concept of like a dominant like property form or a dominant form of exploitation as as determining of an overall society which i mean i tend to think that's so like even in a heterogeneous relation like uh you had in the united states with the industrialist north and the agrarian slave economy in the south that ultimately you know, one of those was a kind of secondary, like, economy where the other was more of, like, a capital-intensive production was the structural heart of that economy. And they could have done some kind of horrible primitive accumulation or, like, hyper-exploitative practice one way or another. And they chose to do slavery in the South, like, in a long-term historical way. So, was Kanye right? Was slavery a choice? <laughs> It was his choice of the uh, Hegelian actor of the American nation spirit, or the English nation spirit, I suppose. Okay. One of the things about this is, Engels makes the implication in this line that there was maybe a central antagonism to all of these formations. But I also think that Marx especially, and Marx and Engels make the claim that that antagonism is simplifying, that the oppressor-oppressed dynamic that has been in human history for so long is becoming more crystal clear in capitalism than ever before, that it is increasingly bourgeois and proletarians. And I guess the question is, in the 21st century, do we feel that it's still simplified? Do we feel that it's still simplifying? There's a lot of literature out there that tries to make the claim that we've kind of moved beyond poverty in certain ways, and I think that's a bit ridiculous. I'm not really sure what that means. When you look at the concentration of wealth... I mean, what would the central antagonism be now, you know? 
boomers and millennials, uh, gamers, uh, dubs uh, versus subs. I mean, what I, I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that. Is it true that capitalism has made things less complicated than in feudalism? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure we've got a petty bourgeoisie, but is the petty bourgeoisie today, you know, quote unquote, sinking into the proletariat, all that? Like, do you both agree with the idea in Marx and Engels that at the end of the day, the petty bourgeoisie, they're sinking or they're going to side with the bourgeoisie? There's like kind of a split. And ultimately, capitalism is a simplification of the historical relation between oppressor and oppressed. In a sense, like, you know, the whole world was proletarianized. You know, almost everybody works for a wage. Yeah, and that's still true. I guess the qualification would be that there's an explosion in the different forms of private property. There is this, like, property that's more immaterial, like it's intellectual property really goes on forever. And all this weird, like, new ways of doing rent-seeking, extracting rents from, like, intellectual property and other, like, dumb forms of non-property. There's a kind of weirdness going on, I guess, you know, (laughs) internally, like, within the forms of property. But I do think, in general, there is a simplification overall with the expropriation of almost every landed working class. At the same time, the system itself has become exponentially more complex. So it's uh it's a dialectical movement, Lexi. Think about it. <laughs> um anything else on fifteen? <coughs> this next one is good. I'm ready for this next one. <coughs> okay. Sixteen. Will the peaceful abolition of private property be possible? It would be desirable if this could happen. And the communists would certainly be the last to oppose it. Communists know only too well that all conspiracies are not only useless, but even harmful. They know all too well that revolutions are not made intentionally and arbitrarily, but that, everywhere and always, they have been the necessary consequence of conditions which are wholly independent of the will and direction of individual parties and entire classes. But they also see that the development of the proletariat in nearly all the civilized countries has been violently suppressed, and that, in this way, the opponents of communism have been working toward a revolution with all their strength. If the oppressed proletariat is finally driven to revolution, then we communists will defend the interests of the proletarians with deeds as we now defend them with words. Spicy. Yeah. This is really the difference between the communist manifesto and this, beyond just the narrative form, is the, fuck yeah, we coming for that toothbrush that Marx adds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Engels is kind of like, look, everyone's violent with them. Like, why wouldn't that happen? Yeah. Dude, keep shitting on those proles. You see what happens. Yeah. You see what I do. Angles was the kind of guy who was willing to go to the barricades himself. Yeah. He wasn't just a... It's true. It's true. And he wasn't an edge lord being warrior. like, you know, you should tremble in your boots, you bastards. I'm fucking drunk right now and I'm ready to fuck shit up. I mean, he was. He was fucking drunk and he was ready to fuck shit up, Lexi. But he was laying back, chilling, Max and relaxing, all cool, and just keeping it on the DL, trying to connect things together. If you really know what you're talking about, you don't have to talk big. You know what I mean? Like, you've got the proletariat behind you. You don't have to talk hard and be like, yeah, we're going to have the most violent revolution, and we're going to guillotine all you motherfuckers, and everything's going to be black metal as shit. I mean, as cathartic as that is. (laughs) It's going to be the bloodiest revolution. We're going to put so many up against the wall. It's going to be a huge, big, beautiful wall, splattered with bourgeois blood. Especially, like, when, like, trans people can be like, uh, 
hey, can you call us by our pronouns? And people are like, this is Maoism come to Canada. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, So when people say that stuff, just being like, yeah, we are going to f- kill people and stuff. Like, it can be cathartic. I mean, but also, I don't want to extrajudicially, like, kill a bunch of people, to be honest. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like... Like when liberals call for like the most like milk toast reforms or like the most minor like social reforms to like be more inclusive, and they're like, "This is it. This is the gulag archipelago. They're building the FEMA camp gulags right now." <laughs> you know, like it is cathartic. Just be like, you know what? The guillotine wasn't such a bad thing. You know, <laughs> they're gonna declare war on us. Like we yeah. don't have to have this right. like abstract right. debate about you know. Well, if we try to expropriate property to stop the exploitation of the working class, like. Can we do that peacefully? Like, I mean, there are certain places where I think we can, um, but of course they're going to try to kill us. And I mean, that that just seems obvious. And I think Angles is kind of resting on that point, like kind of implicitly. Yeah, there is this conception that Kautsky and Angles both share. And of course, Angles accepts some more offensive revolution, but... It's sort of trolling the bourgeoisie and goading them into attacking the workers' government, which then gives the workers' government the moral force to defend democracy against the property holders' revolt. Right. I mean, if you try to do it in good faith, and then the capitalists force your hand. Look at the Civil War. Like, it's not identical because we are dealing with, you know, essentially a bourgeois government trying to destroy the slaveholding class. But it gives you a rhyming class war where the bourgeois government was bending over backwards all the time, really unnecessarily and in some ways insulting to the dignity of like black humanity. But ultimately, it went through without any remuneration for slaveholders. And it was because slaveholders made it violent. So when you're talking about like peaceful revolution, if it goes in a wave like it did with romantic revolutions, like there'll probably be a few violent, huge clusterfucks and then some more or less like bloodless developments in parallel that follow that. But for those first few birth pangs, it's not a matter of is it going to be violent? It's a matter of like, look, it's going to get attacked. They're going to attack an attempt to assert humanity. It will be assailed. Yeah, I mean, that, that's been clearly borne out. Even somebody like Allende, who was, like, unfailingly reasonable, they had no problem just, you know. If John Oliver could design a communist, it would be fucking Allende. <laughs> okay, like, right. that was as safe as yeah. you can play it. Did you see Andy Samberg at the Oscars talk about how the government killed the Black, the Black Panthers. Panthers for trying to assert black dignity? Yeah, that was uh, that was wild. So, it's kind of... That feeling. That's the feeling that get people to defend a revolution. Yeah. Two things. You can't just go around, like, trying to guillotine everybody without social support. Like, revolution rests on social success, not how can I impose this on society. And two, like, there's a certain sense in which you have to be right. There's a certain gaming of the situation to be right, but isn't that, like, just making choices in life? Mm. 17. Will it be possible for private property to be abolished at one stroke? No. No more than existing forces of production can, at one stroke, be multiplied to the extent necessary for the creation of a communal society. In all probability, the proletarian revolution will transform existing society gradually, and will be able to abolish private property only when the means of production are available in sufficient quantity. This is a very short, very straightforward, very simple 
two paragraphs. Two sentences. Honestly, like so much disagreement on this question. So much. And it's something that people still agonize about now. The question of the transition is so huge. Because I think thinking about transition is important insofar as it helps to to a certain extent clarify categories and, you know, maybe give us a sense of, you know, strategy and tactics and so on. But it's impossible to really say. But I think the intelligent move that like Marx and Engels make what Marx considered the central legacy of his body of thought was the dictatorship of the proletariat. It was this idea of having the working class in power. That's the key. In other words, it's not so much that there's a certain set of correct decisions that have to be made on X, Y, and Z. It's the question of who's making the decisions. Because circumstances will change, and it will always be impossible to say. There's no like one invariant way to make communist revolution or revolution, period. But where is the base of power? that will be making the decisions. Right. And if that social base for power is the proletariat, then the motivations are destroy class society. And a lot of the discussions on transition for Marx and Engels, they don't know exactly what we can do, but they know because of the nature of democracy in a kind of universal democracy sense, not the tepid one we're familiar with, that even if you don't have this instant communization you can put society at the helm in a certain sense that it is not now, very quickly. Only when the means of production are available in sufficient quantity will we really be able to transform society. And um, there's always a question of, do we have enough? It's not really like that today. Like, we have so much. In terms of, yeah, the development of the means of production, yes, absolutely. We have a much stronger basis for communism. I wasn't trying to claim that they could have made communism by 1870 or whatever. I was merely saying, like, there could have been, I think, an earlier dictatorship of the proletariat that began to, like, develop the means of production kind of on its own terms back then. It might have taken, from a technical standpoint, a hundred years to get to full communism, but they could have got the process underway differently, perhaps. I mean, it's all speculation. Just to kind of clarify my stance on that little mini-debate from earlier in the episode. That's it for this week. Yep, short one this week. But we've been packing on the content, no? We just launched a bonus episode with Diane Feinstein versus the Younglings. We just put out our Real Movement collaboration with Brett from Revolutionary Left Radio and Sean from the Antifada. And this is part two of a three-part series. If you like what we're doing, we have a bunch of social media pages you could flirt with us on. You know the ones. Or give us a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. That always looks good. If you like us, you really like us, consider subscribing on Patreon or plunking something into our PayPal account. That'd be patreon.com slash swampsidechats and paypal.me slash swampsidechats. Read up on the Patreon page for all the kickbacks and goodies you can get. Or just, you know, skip ahead to the custom episode by giving us 60 bucks flat. The choice is yours, comrade. Next week, we're going to tie this up for good. 
and start knocking out some of those not one step back requests. Until next time, comrades, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.